Welcome to our feature interview for Insights, the faculty journal of Austin Seminary. I am William Greenway, editor of Insights and professor of philosophical theology. The author of our lead essay for the spring 2022 issue of Insights is Dr. David Johnson, professor of church history here at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. This issue of Insights is published in celebration of Professor Johnson's retirement after long years of service to the church, um, both as a pastor and as a professor. Dr. Johnson received his Bachelor of Arts from Yale University, his Master of Divinity from the Yale Divinity School, and his PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary. Over the course of his career, he served for nearly 20 years in pastorates at Wilson Memorial Union Church in Wachung, New Jersey. Did I say that right, David? Yes. Watch Young, New Jersey, at First Presbyterian Church in Irving, Texas, and at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Galveston, Texas. He has also held innumerable posts in Grace Presbytery and at the national level with the PCUSA, including work for more than a decade as co-faculty advisor for the Company of New Pastors. He has served as professor of church history and Christian spirituality at Bright Divinity School at Texas Christian University and here at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Here he has also served as the director of the Certificate in Spiritual Formation Program and as the director of Ministerial Formation. He is the author of numerous publications and the book Trust in God, The Christian Life in the Book of Confessions. Again, the title of Professor Johnson's essay, which we will discuss today, is Praying in Anxious Times. An abbreviated written version of this discussion will appear in this issue of Insights. Welcome, Professor Johnson. We are looking forward to hearing your insights about prayer and praying in anxious times. Thank you, Bill. I'm happy to be here. So first... <clears throat> I want to thank you for your insightful essay and for your decision to focus upon anxiety and prayer in years made anxious because of COVID. Uh, this edition of Insights is meant to honor your career as a church historian, and while you do not address church history directly, your essay wonderfully demonstrates the significance of history for understanding and addressing current concerns. I thought it was a terrific idea to turn to Julian of Norwich, who, as you say, survived a brutal illness and lived through the bubonic plague and a civil war in the 13th century, and to Karl Barth, who lived in the heart of Europe during both the First and Second World Wars in the 20th century. I thought it was brilliant to look to them to gain the insight into the potential of prayer in anxious times. So let's start with the principles for prayer that you discern in Julian of Norwich. The first of the principles you discern in Julian is an emphasis upon the love of God. And you combine this with her exhortation to pray, even if prayer seems dry and empty to us. Why do you, do you want, why did you want to stress this exhortation to pray, even if it feels futile? I think that one of the fallacies of our time in talking about prayer is that 
prayer is supposed to feel good. Now there are some people who approach prayer as a really crass, materialistic way, like I prayed 30 minutes a day and doubled my income. Um, but a lot of the literature, the devotional literature that is out there, uh, talks about the rewards of prayer, uh, which I, I don't want to denigrate that, which can be real, but not everybody experiences that. And the people who don't often think they are doing something wrong or there is nothing at all to this prayer business. Um, Julian has a pastoral emphasis. She wants to help people who need help, and particularly she wants to help people who need help with their spiritual life. And so she emphasizes that how you feel about your prayer, whether it's rewarding or, or dry or empty or uh, a mountaintop experience, how you feel about it is not how God feels about it. God, the God who loves you, wants to hear your thoughts and wishes and feelings. Um, in the same way, a parent, I think, wants to hear what the children are saying and thinking. And it doesn't really matter what the children are thinking or talking about. Uh, it, it's communication based on love and mutual regard. And so I think Julian's words to people who might be having difficulty praying is God hears you, God loves you, God cares about what you say, and you can trust God to be there for you no matter how your prayer feels at any particular time. Where, where do you think this confidence in God's love um, uh, and that God rejoices in our prayers, where does this come from? Um, and especially how are people supposed to have confidence in that if prayer is feeling pointless to them? Well, for Julia, uh, her confidence comes from her conversations with Jesus Christ. <clears throat> um, the book showing recounts a series of visions or revelations that she had while she was very ill, uh, ill to the point of, of dying, uh, there is a crucifix in front of her. The crucifix comes to life, and they talk to each other. They have extended conversations. Uh, the Christ who is on the cross assures her of God's love. The Christ who is on the cross assures Julian of Christ's love, um, and Julian emphasizes that. It is one of the, she's not unique, but at least distinctive in her thoroughgoing emphasis on God's love and how that love is manifested to us in our own lives. 
Now, not everybody is going to have that kind of experience. But I think one of the grounds for Julian's popularity in the 20th and 21st centuries is that people need to hear that. People need to hear that God is love. And if they hear that secondhand through reading books, it, it, it still works. It, it still is... Uh, it still is the assurance of God's love. Now, there is, of course, the Bible. And throughout the Bible, you find expressions of, of God's love. Um, you find other, other sorts of expressions. You certainly find expressions of God's wrath in the Bible, too. Um, but I think the, the emphasis that God is love is both scriptural and is there in the Christian tradition. Um, and in that sense, uh, the words from scripture are trustworthy. And it seems to me that the words of Julian are trustworthy as well. Um, so the second principle you discern in Julian is that the purpose of prayer is to unite us to God. Yes. And you speak of this in terms of our transformation, and in particular our release from sin. Um, is this the only purpose of prayer, or the ultimate purpose of every type of prayer, whether it's petition or confession or thanksgiving or, or any other? Is the ultimate purpose of every type of prayer uh, to unite us to God? Uh, is, is, in this sense, are all prayers paths to the same, you know, different ways to the same end? Well, it seems to me that all prayers that, that are genuine prayers bring us closer to God. That might not be the only thing that they do. Um, but praying is communication. And one of the ways that you keep love alive is through open communication. That is true for us as individuals with each other. That is true for parents and children. Uh, that's also true for God and the children of God. So prayers can do a lot of things. It is standard in, in work on prayer to divide prayers into different categories. Uh, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of intercession, prayers of petition. Um, talking about what the content of any particular prayer is, but every prayer is done with knowledge that we are talking to the God who loves us. We are transformed by that knowledge. Transformation may be small. A lot of times it is small. But um, it's a transformation that involves healing. It is a transformation that involves uniting our will with God's will and uniting our work with, with God's work. So I wouldn't say that... Um, the only thing that prayers do is to bring us closer to God. 
But I would say that every prayer does that, no matter what else the prayer is doing. Can, can you say more about what this transformation feels like? I mean, how do we know it as we experience it? I think it's hard to, to discuss what the transformation feels like in general terms because it might be different for different individuals depending on where they are in their lives and what they're experiencing. But it seems to me that a part of the transformation would be the confidence in the presence of God and the goodness of God and the willingness to let our lives be shaped by, by, by that confidence. What if, if you read Chris, people, Christians who write on spirituality throughout the, uh, throughout the tradition, you often find that there is an emphasis on decreasing the importance of material things in your life, um, being willing to give up things, um, not basing your identity on what you own. And so uh, I think that one of the one of the slides of the transformation would be a less materialistic understanding of the importance of your life. Um, another sign would be that your capacity for love grows. And in particular, your capacity to love people who are disadvantaged, or you, your capacity to love even those who are your enemies. So that that's what I would look for the transformation, an increase in the capacity to love and a decrease in the importance to you of material things. Now, I'm sure that those aren't the only This does not necessarily make you happy. It might might be that you are subjected to tremendous suffering. But that shouldn't be news to anybody. The New Testament tells you that you have to pick up your cross. And you don't get to choose which cross you pick up. But, and even in Luke it says, pick up your cross daily. But the only way that you can do that, or the only reason you can do that, is because of your trust in the love of God that will not abandon you. So you, you say sometimes it seems like our prayers are not being answered. No, but this is because, and I'm quoting you now, the answer is really who we are becoming which speaks to the transformation we're just discussing. It sounds like it's in terms of you talking about our increasing in our capacity for love, our, our openness, our less desire for material things and things like that. Um, 
But does that mean, would it be possible then to read you as saying that we should not pray, for instance, for physical healing or for escape from physical danger, um, and that if we do pray for these things, that we should not expect changes in our health or security? It it seems like that was kind of what you were just saying now when you're saying, you know, daily picking up our cross or understanding what happened to those who were faithful in the New Testament. Um, But the, the, the change we should expect is only a spiritual transformation. Um, so w- what would you say to all this and to people who might ask, well, sh- you know, what about praying for healing or for a new job or safety on the battlefield? Um, uh, and, and, um, and if we do pray in these ways, is it, should we not expect changes in what happens in the world, but only in our spiritual transformation? I would encourage people to pray for healing uh, to pray for safety, um, but to to ask God for whatever they think they need. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think people should do that. Uh, but if what you ask God for does not come about, that doesn't mean that nothing has happened. Yeah, that that's actually the point that I that I want to make. Um, sometimes what has happened is within you the the way, your own transformation. Sometimes what has happened is not apparent to you or to other people. That does not mean that nothing has happened. Um, I think that. It's important for people to understand that God hears prayers, that God desires to hear our prayers, and God does not censor our prayers in terms of the content, but God does not necessarily respond to prayer in the way that we expect or desire. that to me is the importance. We we haven't talked about Bart yet, but that is the to me the importance of what Bart says about God hears our prayers, but God perfects our prayers, and the perfected prayer is what is answered. But I think that God's love means that God is open to what is in our heart. And God does not abandon us or ignore us if we ask for what is in our hearts. I think the only way you can pray wrongly is to try to lie to God. But the fact that your prayer does not seem to be answered does not mean that you have been abandoned. That that is the point that I want to make. So the third principle you discern in Julian is, is, and again I'm quoting, prayer begins in God. So what exactly does this mean or feel like, uh, this sense that our prayers do not begin in us but in God? Um, what experiential or spiritual di- dynamics would you know, lead us to accept or even just understand uh, this idea? Well, Julian says... <clears throat> that even the desire to pray is a prayer. Um, 
that God works in individual souls to move them closer to God's own self. And prayer is a manifestation of that work. We pray in part because the Spirit moves us to pray. And so I think for people who might be saying, I tried to pray, I couldn't, it didn't make any sense to me, I tried to pray, nothing happened. Uh, I tried to pray and it seemed like I was just speaking empty words out into the void. In the very fact of praying for you and Julian understanding, the very fact of praying means that God is already at work within you. And, and that no matter how prayer feels in any particular time, if you know the hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, uh, and you sing that hymn, now that was my grandfather's favorite hymn. Uh, I learned it against my will. He was a farmer, he would sing it to himself as he was out on the tractor picking food or something. Um, it's not necessarily that way. The, 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 the hymn does not describe everybody's experience. But the very fact that you try to pray, even if you don't think anything is happening, even if you think it's pointless or fruitless, the very fact that you try to pray is an indication that God is already at work. If, if you were to just sum up um, extemporaneously, the essence of what Julian teaches us about praying in anxious times, uh, what would you say? Do it. <laughs> it, it it's that simple. Uh, Julian says, pray heartily. Um, now, sometimes are anxious because things are dangerous, things are scary. That that's how life can get sometimes. Um, sometimes our anxieties are seem to be uh, coming from within us. Uh, sometimes it's a response to what is outside of us. But Julian's understanding of prayer is that given God's love, given God's work, given God's desire to make you into the person that God intends you to be, um, don't stop praying. Don't worry about how it feels. Don't worry about what the results might be. Just do it. I think that's, that's Julian's message. And, and I'm getting a little, maybe ahead of ourselves here, but is it also fair to say, given how your emphasis is, is that you, prayer never substitutes for doing either, right? So if, in other words, you don't, if you're worried about healing, you don't pray for healing while not going to the doctor or not pursuing other means for the healing, right? So the prayer goes along with this, but it's never something you do uh, instead of it's it's not what is that would that be correct 
I think prayer is doing something. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to make too hard an opposition between praying and doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that if there is a divorce between what we pray for and what we do, that that indicates there is some kind of problem. And that may be part of the uh, difficulty that I have with the, the common saying that, that the bumper sticker saying, let go and let God. Well, I think that we can let God and don't have to let go. Uh, if our transformation is one of the things that is happening in prayer, our transformation to that visible God. So now Julian herself was an anchorist, which is something like a hermit. Um, anchorists and anchorites, men and women, were giving up living in secular societies. Julian lived in a little hut that was built on the grounds of the Cathedral of St. Julian in Norwich. Uh, actually built, it was a part of the church. Uh, once an anchorist or an anchorite, anchorite or man, anchorist or women, once they went into their hut, they never came out again. They nailed the door shut. And a part of the liturgical acts was uh, of, of the anchorist or anchorite entering the hut, uh, they do a funeral. The idea is that this person is already dead to us. Uh, so Julia, in her hut, is going to be doing a lot of praying, but she is not going to be doing a lot of work in the world. Uh, she does talk to people. She does write her book twice. And what she is what she has done has had considerable effect several centuries later. So I wouldn't want to make prayer and working as hard either or. But I would say that what you pray for and what you commit your life to ought to have some kind of identity. What you pray for and what you do should have some relation to each other. So all the doing should be consistent. So if you pray for the poor, you should also be doing <laughs> for the poor would would come across. And Julian, in her own way, is doing for others. And and you, she had people coming, and she gave them guidance as well as her writing. Right. Right. Is that correct? Right. Okay. Well, let's. You next move to Karl Barth, and the first principle you discern in Barth is the same as the first principle you discern in Julian, um, and and that is this uh, love. Um, yes. Is is that a coincidence, or do you think that would be the first principle that we would find in all sorts of theologians and uh, mystics? Well, I wouldn't think it's exclusive to Bart and Julian, but I do think that you can uh, find other theologians and traditions that approach something differently. One of the things that seems to me to be true, or at least 
Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, it seems to me to be true, um, <laughs> is that in Calvin, you find the sovereignty of grace. In Bart, you find the sovereignty of love. And I think that the sovereignty of grace is one of the things that shows up in Calvin's understanding of predestination. That, that God determines before creation that certain people are going to be saved. And that has nothing to do with God's foresight of how they will live their lives. It's just God's, God's decision. Um, Bart is fairly critical of that, um, although he takes Calvin very seriously. So, now, I'm not sure I'm not entirely sure that the, that that's all that there is to say, but it does seem to me that sovereignty of grace and the sovereignty of love in Calvin on the one hand and Bart on the other look rather different. I do have a serious problem with people who talk about what God hates in terms of individuals rather than qualities of individuals' lives. It seems to me that there is solid ground in the New Testament. And I guess I've got first letter of John in mind as much as anything. That if you talk about God, you have to talk about love. But I think that the emphasis on God's love that you find in Julian in a rather different way in Karl Barth is distinctive within their traditions. You you quote Bart as saying that God commands us to pray um, and that God loves us is the meaning of God's command. So two questions. How, how do we hear that command to pray? And how is love the meaning of that command? Well, that actually has to do with um, Bart's whole approach to Christian ethics. You know, Bart gives a very amount of time to ethics in his multi-volume work, Church Dogmatics. And the ethics is based on the command of God, but the command of God is the expression of God's love. We might not experience commands as things that are expressions of love, that's because <laughs> there, there are things in life that command us that are not divine. But, but Bart is insistent that if you talk about God's commands, God's commands are based on love. And one of the commands is to pray. Um, well, Paul famously says, pray without ceasing. There are various interpretations of what he actually meant, but um, make make your desires known to God. Pray to God. Pray pray to the one who loves you. Don't don't clam up. And that is not just a suggestion, but that that means I think for us that 
prayer is a matter of obedience and how that prayer might feel at any particular time is kind of irrelevant. But but I think that the, the basic principle is one that you see all, all through Bart, that God God does command, but God's commands are expressions of God's love. So the second principle you discern in Bart is that God answers all prayers. Uh, but actually, we'll get to that in a moment, because in that section, you actually, what you emphasize is that God hears the prayers of all. So the emphasis is on the all, um, whether they're Christian or not, saint or sinner. Um, so what do you make of this emphasis upon this kind of a universal inclusion? Well, I think that's entirely consistent with, with Bart's theology. You, you find a, a kind of universalism that shows up in Bart in, in many places. He does say, and this is, this is in his doctrine of uh, reconciliation, that God justifies all, God sanctifies all, and God gives a vocation to all. And that is is decisively universal. Uh, Christians, Christians in the church, have a special job to do. And their job is to announce the grace of God, to, to, to share good news. But the love of God or Bart, is, is universal. Um, God loves all of his children. And God's, uh, God's love, in one way, is, is expressed in the willingness to hear all prayers. And I think that that means prayers that not are that aren't explicitly prayers uh, might be a, a, a wish or a hope. Um, I hope my child does well in his exam today is almost a prayer. I hope that my friend who has cancer experiences healing. That's almost a prayer. And I, I would argue that God hears such things as prayers. They're, they're, they're almost prayers. All, all you've got to do to make them actual prayers is to think about who it is you're talking to. I have heard a lot of people say things that I find problematic at best. One of, one of the things that I've heard people say, pastors say, television pastors say, um, they talk about prayers that God doesn't hear. Well, that seems to me to be uh, almost blasphemous, actually. Um, that God why would God create someone 
whom God does not love. Uh, so the, the basis of the individualism, I, I think, is uh, um, well. You can, I think, you could find uh, scriptural uh, New Testament justification. Does this mean that all will be saved? Well, Bart considers that question, and he said something like, uh, "We might deduce that from our theology, but God is not going to be bound by anybody's theological deduction." So universal salvation is not something we should we can deduce, but it is something we can pray for. So you also say <clears throat> that uh, Bart says that that God perfects our prayers. Um, yes. And is this is this the sense in which God answers all prayers because God perfects prayers that might be uh, deficient? And so. I guess I want what what sorts of prayers need perfection? What are the sorts of deficiencies that Bart has in mind? Uh, what would be the characteristics of a perfected uh, prayer? Well, I'm not sure you can address that in general term, but I think that you might have to look at particular prayers by particular individuals. But um, the closing of a prayer with the words in Jesus' name or in Christ's name. Now, I, and this is one of the places where I have heard uh, people say that if you don't say that, God doesn't hear that prayer. Uh, it seems to me to be wrong. Uh, the point of saying in Jesus' name is, is this the kind of a prayer that Jesus would pray? Or is this the kind of a prayer that Jesus would not pray? The kind of a prayer that Jesus would refuse to pray? So, if, say, you pray that someone that you do not like, someone who has injured you, if you pray that someone who has injured you should suffer misfortune, God, Fred ran all over my lawn and messed it up. So, I would like you to give Fred terribly itchy skin rice that would last for several weeks. Well, I think, you know, that that's that seems to me is not a prayer that Jesus would pray or encourage us to pray. But that prayer might be perfected in a way that says, God did me an injury. And so I ask you to take away my anger and help me to understand that Fred is just a person who's trying to get along just like everybody else is. Now, is that a perfect prayer? Probably not. But is that a prayer that is directed at that, that acknowledges your anger, but that still is concerned with Fred's welfare. I, I think that's the kind of thing that a, a perfected prayer might, might look like. Now, that's that's just an off-the-top-of-my-head example. Um, <laughs> as far as I know, none of my neighbors have wrecked up my yard. Um, <laughs> but, but I think that that's the kind of thing that that it seems to me Bart has in mind. 
the sort of a prayer that would turn hate into love and would turn anger into forgiveness. And you'd see a deep tie here, right, um, to Julian and the, the talking about how the, the end of prayer is the transformation of ourselves. So yes. this would be an example of that. Um, and, and you say here sometimes... Um, we think the the prayer uh, has not a prayer has not been answered, but actually the prayer has been perfected, and so seeing the answer is a matter. I'm quoting now a matter of faith, and not sight. Um, but that sight would be more about expectation of things that might happen, which really aren't consistent with, um, you know, the love of God. Um, or something like that. Is that how? How would what? Can you maybe unpack that line where you talk about a prayer? You, you think it hasn't been answered, but it's it's because it's been perfected. It's a matter of faith, not sight. It seems to me that that would tie into what you were just talking about. You know, partly it means that we we cannot judge the effectiveness of prayer empirically. Although I have read some articles that try to do just that, uh, but I think that. We pray with trust. And the trust is that God will, first of all, hear our prayers, and secondly, respond to our prayers in a way that is an expression of God's love. We might not experience that. It might happen outside of our sight. Uh, but it seems to me that's part of what it means when in the Lord's Prayer we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You know, and we don't, in the Lord's Prayer, we don't get to what we actually need until the second half of the prayer when we say, Give us this day our daily bread. And bread symbolizes all all that we might need there. But we don't say that part until after we have said thy kingdom come. And so I, I think that that is uh, that's what I've got in mind when I say that having faith that prayers are answered might not be a matter of seeing. But the faith is that the fact that we don't see it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. And is there something about that dynamic, the dynamic of praying? And here, I'm getting ahead of myself maybe again here. Because you say we can't measure it empirically, but, but maybe we could measure whether people are changed over time through prayer. Um, it, 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 it seems like that's an effect you expect when you say God answers all prayer. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I, I should not make the statement so so unequivocally that that uh, prayers cannot be judged empirically. Sometimes they can, um, but but the fact that now let, let me say it again. I was about to say something I said just a few minutes ago, but I will say it again. Um, the fact that we don't see something happen doesn't mean it didn't happen. 
the fact that we don't see how God can be at work in this particular situation does not mean that God is not at work in this situation. And that's the difference between faith and sight. Sometimes we see, sometimes we don't. And then you make an interesting move in the essay, because up to now, when we've been talking about prayer or thinking about it, I think it would be natural for all of us to think of it in, in individual terms. But the next thing you stress, again, moving from Bart, is the R in the R Father, and how prayer is a communal activity. And what, what is it about that you want to emphasize? And, and is there a sense in which, even when Julian is praying alone in her hut, that it's still, or other, you know, the desert mothers or fathers, uh, is it still a communal activity? Um, is, is there a sense in which it's always a communal activity as well as an individual activity? Now, there's, there's a reason that the Lord's Prayer doesn't start with my father. Actually, this is kind of footnote, but, but let me say it. In, from the very first Christian treatise on prayer, which was written by origin in the third century up to the present day uh, people have used the Lord's Prayer not just as a prayer to say but as a model for what prayer should be and so starting the Lord's Prayer with our Father means that we pray with other people who I mean, sometimes we know what we're doing. If we're in a congregation, we, we uh, pray together. That's one of the things that congregations do. Uh, but even if you are alone, even if you are following the directions of Matthew 6, uh, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, uh, close the blinds, turn off the TV, uh, you know. Tell Is that all in Matthew 6? <laughs> I don't remember the TV bit. <laughs> well, you know, but, um, it's implied. <laughs> um, anyway, um, the fact that you are alone and <clears throat> pray does not mean that the prayer are alone because other people are praying at the same time. The, the prayers that we pray are shared prayers. Now, they're from our individual points of view. One of the, one of the aspects of, of faith in prayer is faith that when we pray, we are not alone. Uh, that other people are praying in their own individual ways who are humans who experience the things that humans experience. Uh, not just the good things, but the uh, the pain and the worry, the anxiety, uh, the trials. Uh, um, we do. We 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 pray together, and God. That seems to me that that God God knows us as individuals, but God knows us as a people as well. No. Uh, we've been talking about praying throughout here, so this might seem like an obvious question, or, or I don't know, but at the same time, maybe a difficult question. Uh, but what, what would you say the essence of prayer is? I mean, if you were simply to describe it, not not Bard or Julian, although, you know, uh, I would imagine consistent with them, 
what what is it? What is the thing itself? What essentially is it to pray? I think to pray is to speak to the one who loves us. That that's part A. And part B is to surrender to the will of the one who loves us. Prayer is talking to God. But we should have some idea of the God to whom we speak. And we should also remember that the Lord's Prayer bids us to pray, Thy will be done. So in that sense, to, to pray is, is on the one hand to ask for what we think we need, but it's also to submit to God's will. So you, you frame your essay with... Um... Uh, talking about the famous foxhole prayers, there's no atheists in foxholes, um, yeah. and also that's not true. <laughs> um, and also in reference to a young boy in W. Somerset Mom's book on human bondage, um, and so, so the boy in the book is Philip Carey, and he prays to be healed of a club foot. Um, and I want to ask some a couple of questions in relation to these examples. So. Um, and 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 first, how is a prayer in a foxhole a real foxhole a real prayer, and how might it need to be perfected? And, and let me let me build on that a bit. And let's say I'm in a foxhole foxhole and I pray, um, but in short order, uh, a shell explodes in my foxhole and I'm killed. And so, uh, how in that context would you speak of my prayer and it's being um, answered? Or let's say I survive and I'm grievously wounded. Um, and maybe you're the chaplain uh, who goes in and, and comes and talks to me. How in that context do you talk about that prayer um, and it being answered? Or and the prayer being perfected? Sometimes people live and sometimes they're wounded and sometimes they're killed. Um, but I think that the, the, the perfected prayer might be something like God did not abandon me and God saying I will not abandon you even through death. And at that point, the last few verses of Romans 8 come to mind. Now that's something that also is a matter of faith and not sight. But I, I think that the, the God saved me or God did not let me be wounded or uh, God did not let my friends die. Uh, it seems to me that the response to that from God's side is something like, I will not abandon you even in pain or wounding or death. Um, now, as you tell us, in W. Somerset Mom's book, the young protagonist, uh, Philip Carey, uh, reads that the one with enough faith can move mountains through prayer. So he prays for his foot to be healed. The foot is not healed. So he goes to the reverend, who's also his adoptive father, and asks why he has not been healed. And the reverend tells him that it, that it proves that he does not have enough faith. That's why it's not been healed. Um, you say that his uncle's response was rather cool. I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree with you. Um, 
It, it also appears to reflect an understanding of prayer very different from that of Julian um, or Bart. So what would you have said to that young boy? Well, okay, first of all, I think in, in the book, Mom is very careful. Philip does not tell his uh, guardian. No, I prayed that it didn't happen. It was in more general terms. What if somebody prayed for something that didn't happen? At that point, the guardian says, well, I suppose it means he didn't have enough faith. And then a few sentences later, Philip concludes that nobody has enough faith. What would I say in that particular situation? Um, I'm not sure. Quite, quite honestly, I am not sure. I, I think that I would certainly want to say that your disability does not separate you from the love of God, that God's will was that you endure this for whatever reason. Um, and you can do that with grace and faith and a sense of humor and the sense that your life still has value. I think I would try to say something like that. I wouldn't want to make it cheap. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to. Uh, I wouldn't want to give young Philip platitudes. But I do often think about uh, the situation in in the Gospel of John, where. Jesus encounters a blind man and he is asked, who sinned, this person's parents or himself, that he was blind? And Jesus responded, nobody sinned. Nobody sinned, but this was done to show the glory of God and that he heals him. Well, I have to come back to that story. And I wonder about, I, I think about the ways in which those who are unhealed can still be manifestations of the glory of God. Uh, and I think that happens. I, I Actually, I know that that happens. Uh, but I also know that people who are wounded in some way, physically or psychologically or spiritually, uh, suffer because of their wounds. And think about, is there some kind of calculus that means that I have to endure this because of something else? Now, you know, Philip Carey goes on and lives a life somehow that experience, that early experience, which it seems reflects something of, of mom's own life, um, was so wounding that it, you lost faith. Well, 
And I think that I would want to say that anybody, but particularly people who suffer with physical disabilities, you know, first of all, the fact that you are disabled does not at all mean that you are, uh, you have lost your worth as a person. Yeah. Your value as a person does not depend upon your disability. Uh, the second thing I would say is that you can still do something, and a part of your task as a disabled person is to find what it is that you can do and to do it. Might take you a while. Uh, you might not be able to, to play wide receiver for the Denver Broncos, but you can still do something and you are a valuable person and what you can do is valuable. It's interesting you go to, because it, um, it, many commentators uh, think the club foot and mom's novel. And, and I say this because I looked it up, not that, I, not that I'm expert and mom, whose name I couldn't even say, uh, but that it, it may be a stand-in for his own uh, stutter. Um, he stuttered. And it's interesting that um, Philip Carey in the novel becomes a doctor um, after he doesn't get healing. Uh, mom becomes a writer uh, and uh, makes a contribution there. Um, it's, it's, I, it'd be interesting to think about that. Um, and, of course, those of us who know you, know that complications and uh, perhaps medical errors at birth um, left you permanently paralyzed from the waist down. Um, so it's, it's hard not to wonder if there are parallels between a young W. Somerset mom and a young Philip Carey and a young David Johnson. Um, and if your scholarly insights into Julian of Norwich and Karl Barth and prayer uh, may not also be rooted in a lifetime of hard-earned wisdom, uh, and so this is our, my final question is, could you reflect upon your topic and your reflections upon prayer uh, from that perspective? You already had just begun to do that, but I wanted to be sure to get um, the question in so we, everyone knew uh, the context um, as you answered that question. Well, first of all, I'm not exactly paralyzed. I have cerebral palsy. Cerebral palsy is a brain injury uh, associated with birth or shortly after birth. And what it looks like depends upon what part of the brain is injured. Um, well, mine is a little unusual in that my legs are rather severely compromised. Uh, my arms are not. And I, my speech is not. So partly that meant that I could make my make a living by talking, uh, which I have done. Um, but I did. I, I can't remember when I first read a human body. I was. Uh, I might have been a teenager, and I, I it might have been one of those books that. Is on the hundred books you should read before you go to college, which I took seriously. Uh, but I was struck by this passage, not because it reflected anything that I had personally done, but it did 
And I, I understood it. I really did understood it. I understood the desire. I understood why you have to pray to be healed. I understood the disappointment. Uh, and I understood the uh, how, how that could compromise or, or destroy one's faith. I, I, I understand that. Um, for me personally, thinking about my own life, I think that my my fundamental desire in relation to my disability was not to be healed as such, but it was to belong. It was to be a part of things. Um, and that was what I, I really wanted. I, I wanted to belong. Well, you know, boys growing up uh, compete with each other. Who you play football? You you play basketball? You play volleyball? You you, you roll around on the ground? You, you do that? Um, well, I was no great asset to the football team uh, or or any other sport. Uh, I wanted to be because I wanted to belong. I wanted to be a part of that. Uh, so my prayer. In relation to living with a disability, partly it is, you know, let, let me belong, let me be a part of things. Um, but partly it is, and I think more fundamentally it is, let me find ways to do what I love doing that. I could do without reference to being disabled. And it seems to me that in terms of whatever gifts I've got and in terms of, of where life has taken me, uh, I've been able to do that. Uh, would I like to have lived a life without a disability? Yes, of course I would. Sometimes I wonder if you know, that part, part of the reason that I have to live with disability is because if I didn't have it, I might be dangerous. You know, um, I might go. I might have got to beat somebody up or something. Um, I don't know. You know, I I, I don't know, and uh, and I think there there is a, a massive. I don't know that is a part of the answer to any uh, consideration of disability. Why am I blind? Why am I deaf? Why can't I run? Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know. If, uh, once you get beyond the physiological, but to get the but to get to the point where, okay, why did God allow this to happen? That at that point, I think I don't know. But it doesn't mean that you are without worth, and it doesn't mean you have nothing to contribute. 
So your task in life, and now this is to myself and to other disabled people out there, your task in life is to find that something that you can do and to do it as well as you can. Well, thank you, David. This has been a delightful um, and informative uh, discussion. Um, thanks for uh, taking on a deadly serious, difficult, and uh, vital topic that I think, especially today with all the anxiety that's out there, um, is, is just so important to people. Um, and thanks for your own vulnerability. Um, and uh, in addition to your, your addition, um, and talking to us um, about prayer. So thank you for your wisdom, uh, and uh, we appreciate we appreciate uh, your insights. Thank you, Bill.